This podcast is a proud member of the CypherCast Network. Discover more at cyphercast.net and follow us on Twitter at cyphercast.net. Welcome to Incantations, an Invisible Sun podcast. I'm Scott. And I'm Dave. And we will be your guides along the path of suns. Today we sing two spells. With One Man and His Time plays many parts, we continue the development mode actual play featuring Ayatona. And then, with A Distant Light Pierces the Mist, we provide an example of using fronts to develop material for improvisational game planning. Join us on the path of suns, and we may uncover a secret or two. With one man in his time plays many parts, we follow the continuing story of Ayatona and the Goetic. And speaking of actual play, uh, we have a little something to call out here. Uh, James D'Amato and Darcy Ross, they've got a Kickstarter running right now, which is going to be a dramatic campaign using the Invisible Sun RPG. Uh, it's called A Woman with Hollow Eyes, and you can back it right now. Uh, so head on over to Kickstarter. Search for a woman with hollow eyes, and you should be able to find it there. Otherwise, we have uh, links in the show notes. They have a first session recorded that they streamed on Twitch a, a few weeks back. Um, and you can watch them create their characters and create their neighborhoods. They will be wrapping this Kickstarter up on December 12th, which is great because December 12th is my birthday. So I have a feeling that they are doing this just for me. Right? Uh, that seems like a reasonable inference. Yeah, that's what I said. Um, yeah, so check it out and, uh, you know, back it. They've got a whole bunch of different levels. Uh, so if you want to make up some names and make up some magical flux ideas, um, come up with uh, demons and angels for them, uh, they have levels that will let you do all of those things. So let's move on into our actual play, our development mode. So when we last left Ayatona, wasn't it Ayatona? Or Ayatono? Maybe it's Ayatono. It's been a couple of weeks. It has been. Sorry, people. <laughs> so Ayatono, Ayatono. Uh, when we last left him, uh, he had been talking with a demon who goes by the name Dek Nomoth. And uh, he was the one that had set up in that house by the market nearby the shrine that Ayatona works in. So we can assume that some time has passed, uh, however long you want it to be. But um, what what do you want to do now that you have figured out, you know, what was in there and what it's kind of doing in there? My first instinct is just to sort of watch to see whether uh, I see the demon taking more people uh, or otherwise uh, causing problems in the neighborhood. But given my position in the uh, kind of nightmare purging business, uh, I am paying particular attention to whether the influence of this demon in the neighborhood is starting to creep into the nightmares that people are bringing to us uh, for our, uh, you know, cleansing. Okay. Um, so uh, a few days go by and the, the demon doesn't seem to be coming out of the house or really doing much of anything. 
Uh, people have been keeping a pretty wide berth around the house itself. Uh, the the previous owner um, has lodged uh, a complaint with the local government, uh, but you're not sure exactly how that is turning out. Uh, but for the most part, things have calmed down again, but now there's this strange chain-bound house uh, at the edge of the marketplace. So what would you what would you like to do about it at this point or about anything? Uh, I'm less worried about changing that or, or, you know, displacing the demon than I am just making sure that the influence doesn't spread. Okay. Is this something that I should take to the, the Thea uh, or should I, um, uh, <laughs> should I go to the neighborhood uh, kind of political organization? What I referred to is the uh, uh, neighborhood association and see if I could actually turn them into the threat I portrayed them to be uh, to this demon. Uh, I think that's uh, up to you. Uh, and when you said the Thea, you mean the Thaw, correct? Maybe it's Thaw. Sure. Yeah, I think it was the Thaw, the T-H-A-H. They were the... That sounds right. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it, it's it's up to Aitono and how you want to handle this. Well, let's let's go to the, uh, na- you know, the equivalent of the Neighborhood Association because I sort of use them as a threat... Uh, to get myself out of the uh, the demon's house, uh, mm-hmm. but also to warn the demon not to uh, you know come out much further uh, or to cause many problems, because I wanted to make sure he was afraid of this organization. So it might be best if I actually apprise the organization of the situation, so that uh, they may be able to follow up on the fearful image that I created of them. Uh, okay, so you do you go and you do speak to this organization, um, and we were saying we were saying that they were a, a homeowners association that may be run by demons. Is that what we were equating them to? Well, it might be lowercase d demon. Uh, so, uh, from the perspective of the rest of the people in the neighborhood, they are fearsome entities to be sure. Okay. Um, how about we pull a card here, get some inspiration from the art, and then also see what our number is so that we can decide how effective you are at turning them against uh, Dak Nomoth, who is currently taking up residence. Sound good? That sounds great. Okay, so the card we pulled is Watcher. It is the number nine from the Mysteries family, which is associated with um, your Goetic, who is a Stoneheart, uh, and this card is a Sovereign. So what that means is, uh, I'm dropping my pen all over. Uh, I don't think I need it right now. Uh, so what that means is things are going very well for you. Uh, the Sovereign cards are very good cards. They they help you on any actions that you are attempting, uh, and since it's associated with your fam, uh, with your heart. It's even better for you. So, uh, I'm thinking of um, I'm thinking that this is going to go very well. Um, and here's how it's shaking out. So the uh, the association that you're you're talking to it's it's not so much a homeowners association. It's this is the local uh, governing body of the neighborhood that you live in. And you know you go in and you you know, talk with, uh, some of the people that are in there and they eventually set up a meeting with you and they, they, 
recognize uh, your position in the neighborhood and the services that you do provide here. Uh, so you're you're respected and people appreciate the um, commerce and services that your shrine and the work you do there brings to the community. Um, so um, eventually they, you know, sit you down for a meeting and we need, we need a name because the guy who, or the person who's in charge of this association, who do we want to, what, what, what sort of name do we want to give this person? Um, I don't know if we've had enough, uh, female characters. Let's make it a female, uh, leader. Sounds good. And how about Kenna? All right. Kenna. Uh, Kenna, she is, let's call her a Vizlay. Um, and she is going to be, oh, I want to put a Vance in charge of this association. It feels like the right order to put here. Uh, so Kenna's a Vance. It kind of fits with the image too. Yes. Uh, okay. So Kenna, the Vance, who's in charge of the local association here, she she sits you down and she tells you um, that, yes, they did take note of it. Uh, and the previous owner of the house uh, did lodge, lodge a complaint with them. And they've been taking it very seriously. And they placed uh, several statues around the house itself. Um, they re Well, they animated several of the statues that are in the area in order to keep an eye on what's going on at this house. And what they found is that this demon, uh, Deknomoth, uh, he has what appears to be dealings with entities that are, you know, typically found in the Undersling. So he's been entertaining guests, uh, and there is some some way that they are able to get up into his house from the Undersling, and. Uh, Kenna suggests if you could follow up on this, uh, they don't have the resources to pursue this any further at this time, but if you could look into it, it would be very helpful and very good for the community. Well, I, I advise her that it might also be helpful to note that one of the ways I was able to get out of my conversation, uh, with this demon is to create the concern or the fear of a powerful neighborhood association ah, right. and uh, that that might be useful to them uh, because he does seem to believe that such an association exists and they might be able to if they uh, present the right tone and they talk to him in the right way with with these threats in mind reinforcing this image uh, they may be able to kind of keep him in uh, uh, keep him under taps for a little while um, wraps, I guess. Yes. And, uh, she expresses, uh, her gratitude. She, she's very thankful for, you know, what you were able to instill into his mind about what this association would be like. Um, and, uh, if it would help things out, um, she would be able to send some people out to, you know, confront the demon and throw some legalese at him and hopefully, you know, send him packing at least temporarily, uh, if that would be of use to you. I think it would, uh, it would, if nothing else, reduce the difficulty of investigating the house further. So are, are you suggesting that there is intelligence, 
that reports some sort of either portal or passage between this house and the undersling itself? Uh, so the the statues that they've put in place, they have noticed, uh, they have been picking up on uh, fluctuations in the magic around here. And it uh, has the strange sort of distorted uh, red aura that you see uh, if it was magic from the red sun, but it's distorted in the way that, uh, you know, is unique to the undersling, which is this red sun incursion into the indigo sun. Okay, well, I, I can certainly use that information. And if they can occupy or otherwise distract the demon, I might be able to do a little more thorough of an investigation. And I think the next time we pick up on this, uh, the house will be vacant for you, uh, at least for the time being, because the demon is going to skedaddle for just a little bit. It's a good thing that I'm a goetic because I may have particular uh, insight into the connections between the suns uh, and how creatures pass between them. And I hope to use that to uh, investigate this connection between the demon, the house, and the undersling. With a distant light pierces the mist, we discuss inspiration from other games and media that can serve your Invisible Sun campaign. In this casting, we continue our discussion of fronts with an example of how these tools uh, can develop material for an improvisational campaign. I want to warn players in my Invisible Sun playtest group that you should probably skip this segment for now. We actually put the actual the, the actual play segment first so that you can skip to the end uh, and not worry about losing much just yet. But it's possible that this discussion will spoil where our campaign is going to, to some degree. Uh, and I wouldn't want you to uh, trip across that information too early, though I don't think it'll necessarily ruin your enjoyment. So I guess you have to make the call. But if you're in my Invisible Sun playtest, you may want to uh, skip to the next episode. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> okay, so uh, if uh, I will review the basic parts of the front that we discussed in episode 31, but to give you some context, this is part of uh, the dare I accepted several, I don't even remember how many episodes ago, when uh, Dave mentioned he was, he found the green sun to be one of the less interesting suns. Oh, that was so and long ago. Yes. Um, so I took a, um, at that point, uh, I decided that I, one of the things I wanted to do was to convince Dave that the green sun could could be interesting in and of itself. Um, I'm sure he thinks it could be somewhat interesting, but I want I want to pique his interest in what we could do with the green sun and uh, and bringing in these surreal elements. Uh, as for review, the green sun focuses on growth and nature. And one of the distinctive characteristics is that there are no permanent settlements. So there aren't cities in the green sun uh, because they're all overgrown or taken back by nature. So I wanted to use this setting to show how we can uh, develop uh, campaign ideas and uh, use this, use the concept of fronts uh, to develop some uh, resources for an improvisational campaign. My inspiration for this front is my longtime fascination with myconids from D&D. These are the fungus creatures that have appeared in all, if not or, or, most, if not all of the editions of Dungeons Dragons. Uh, Dave, are you familiar with or do you have any memories of myconids? 
Um, I I'm familiar with them simply because they are in the current edition of D and D. I don't really remember them from any of the previous ones. I'm sure they were there, but um, I never used them. But these are intelligence intelligent fungus, right? These are intelligent fungus, right? And uh, I'll be straying from some of the 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 myconid model to a great extent. Um, I I won't go into their full history. I think they first appeared in the S series, not the S series, the A series of AD and D modules, the Slavers series, and they were um, kind of strange and funky variations. Not the sort of monster you usually expect in a D and D campaign, uh, and it was included as part of this tournament. Uh, so they were kind of a, a puzzle and a monster all at once, and I always liked that. And I, I want to kind of bring that forward, uh, but to broaden the idea from walking toadstools that swing spears to a broader uh, front uh, based in the green. So in this case, it's a kind of an invasion of a, of a fungus area, kind of a, an invasion of a fungal bloom into a region of the green. And that's going to be my, my, the threat for the front. Sounds good. Uh, the the second so the first part of the front is a threat. The second part is the impulse. This is what is the motivation behind this front? Why does it continue and develop over time? I mean, sometimes the threat might not actually be conscious. We might talk about motivation, but in this case, we can actually talk about motivation in some sense. And simplistically, the impulse of this fungal bloom is to grow, to expand. It's what fungi do. However, I want there to be some a little bit more to that, uh, and it's it, the, an answer to a secondary question: Why haven't they done this before? Why have the green, the residents of the green sun, not been fighting back this bloom the whole time? What's new about this that brings the players into an interesting story? And in that case, I wanted to put it a, a part of the impulse is to avoid a contamination that has recently emerged in their community. And I won't go into great detail there because it's not necessary for our uh, discussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but basically, they have encountered a contamination, which in the campaign is going to be related to uh, a threat that the players have dealt with previously. But that threat has expanded and gone in some different areas. One of the ways that it has affected the the, the green sun in this case is by threatening the uh, the, the fungus creatures and convincing them that they have to grow to correspond. They have to leave the areas that they were in and continue to grow to become secure. So their impulse is to continue to grow to secure themselves against this contamination. So we've got two parts. We've got a threat and an impulse. We've got two left, grim portents and impending doom. So grim portents is kind of the fun stuff. This is how might the players begin to see that the threat is present and growing. And in this case, I'm having to cheat a little bit because I'm throwing my players right into it. So mm-hmm. they're going through some grim portents quickly. But you could use these to slowly roll out a thread if you wanted to. So it it would be something you could sprinkle in while they're dealing with other stuff. Right. And so if you had multiple threats, one thing you could do is you could start with one threat and start sprinkling in the, the early grim portents of other threats. Mm-hmm. So that by the time they actually confront the threat itself, they've seen reflections of this threat before when dealing with some other threat. 
but in my case, because I was developing this for season two of my playtest, I'm basically starting it. I'm introducing the threat and throwing them right into it. So uh, I won't be using that sprinkling strategy, though. I think it is a good one when you have multiple threats that you're pursuing in a long-term campaign. Okay. Um, so when you say you're throwing them right into this, uh, are they like, did you end in the green sun with your first, first season or, uh, are you opening up the second season with them in the green sun? Like how, like what's the current situation? Um, I ended the, or I'm beginning the, the second season with them finding that the threat that they, uh, eliminated at the end of season one is part of a broader plan. And they have various hooks related to their character arcs that have converged to send them to the green sun. I don't want to go into too much and let, okay. let, you know, let me tell you about my character sort of stuff, mm-hmm. but uh, that is useful to know. So they, th- at the beginning of this season, the party has all decided for various reasons. It's an, it's time to visit the green sun again, actually. Um, and when they arrive, I'm basically dropping them on the, f- the doorstep of this front. Okay. So they're going to hit some grim portents importance immediately yes almost immediately if if i i'm going to talk about the grim importance as if i had more time mm-hmm. if i had more time i might first have them hear of distant reports of this uh this fungus threat that's invading the, the territory of, of various groups within the, the green sun so uh, uh but, just to interrupt real quick uh distance distant reports that that sounds like something that's fairly broad and you could use in almost any front Absolutely. Right. This is where the players may not encounter the, th- the threat directly, but they're starting to hear of its existence or they're starting to hear of problems related to the existence of the threat, even if they don't know what the threat is yet. In the green sun, they may, in a distant report may be as simple as there's been uh, uh, reports of mass migrations of animals through the green sun, mm-hmm. but no one knows why. Uh, it may be reports of these fungal blooms that are uh, far away, but no one really knows why. So you could use these distant reports just to set up the threat. And you're trying to come up with things that are, uh, I guess, not just describing the fungal bloom itself, but uh, side effects of the bloom. Right. And that's easier to see in the second Grim Portent which I did introduce in their their first encounter before they saw the bloom itself or right around that time. Mm-hmm. They could see evidence of an infection on the residents of the green sun. In this case, I, I basically get, started people just sort of scratching and itching. Is that actually a grim portent of the fungus creatures or is that a grim portent of your infection? In my case, I'm kind of taking it as both because I'm going to have the fungus, the the bloom itself that's invading, produce the spores that's actually creating this infection. Okay. So it's a little bit of a tonal reference as well as being a literal reference to the threat. Though in this case, it's only the kind of a minor manifestation of the threat. Mm -hmm. So some of the wardens who've been scouting the area, uh, they they met, they talked to one and they saw a a black spot on on his back. And that's going to be sort of a, a, a little infection caused by proximity to this bloom. Okay. Cool. Um, I had them run in, actually observe animals being displaced by the bloom. And, uh, and that warden actually asked them to help evacuate animals from the area because the bloom was growing into the area and the animals were fleeing from it because they, they felt it was a contamination. They were, uh, that it was, you know, 
th- basically it was, it was unfit for them to continue to live in that, that area. Okay. And those are pretty early grim portents just to set things up. And again, with, since I was dropping them into this almost immediately, I raced through these grim portents, basically one encounter at a time, but you could set those up and sprinkle them in one in one session, one, two sessions later, you, however you want to mix them in with other threats. You, I, you probably want to have multiple fronts going in at the same time. So you can cut back and forth and sprinkle one end of the other rather than spending the entire time dealing with fungus uh, in this case. Yeah. And, and these feel like a good exercise to sort of run through as a GM because you can say, all right, so we have this fungal bloom that is, you know, growing into this new area. What happens when it does that? Like what happens in that area? Well, um, you know, we have displacement of the the native wildlife and it doesn't really, you know, tip your hand to the players as to what's actually happening. So you can kind of drop that little bit of foreshadowing in there that, you know, this is, this is caused by a larger problem. Uh, and also had like contamination of water running through the area. So there's lots of different things you can do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but it's a brain, it's, this is really a brainstorming exercise with some structure. Yep. Uh, so that's what I've done so far, but I, I also wanted to think of Grimportance that are further along in the development of this particular front. Like imagine this front continues unabated mm-hmm. um, or that the you know, it's not completely eliminated immediately, which it probably won't be. Uh, I can imagine that the uh, the fungal uh, bloom, the, 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 this cre- these creatures start building an infrastructure within their in the, the, the area that they've now claimed. I'll get back to what that infrastructure represents and some fun stuff from research. Uh, but it's further along the grim importance when you move not just from an area being invaded, but now the area that's been claimed is being kind of institutionalized and built onto. And that claimed territory is becoming claimed more permanently because of these structures. So it's, again, showing a more developed version of a grim portent. Um about these about the infrastructure that they're putting together is that something that would have existed in their previous territory or is this something that's more defensive is that something that you've thought about or or not i have not thought much about it okay i saw it more as facilitating uh movement and communication more than i thought of it as defensive okay though it would also make sense for it to be defensive so there may be a little bit of both cool uh and my final grim portent uh is that again based on some research and fun science news stories about fungus uh some people likely have run across a story about the fungus that invades ants turns them into little zombie ants i thought that'd be a fun thing to play with and instead have the fungal spores that have already caused infections in some places could actually become mind controlling spores if the uh, fungal bloom is able to act kind of weaponize and perfect that technology in its invasion. So that's kind of a, a later grim portent of, of how this, uh, this threat is growing and becoming really scary once it can con- control other animals. Um, here, here's another little twist on that. Um, there's a, there's a bacteria, I forget exactly what it's called, but there's a bacteria in like cat poop that if you oh, yes. have cats and you get this bacteria, it makes you like cats even more. Toxoplasmosis. That's it. <laughs> I have cats. Yeah, I, I have cats. I don't have toxoplasmosis. 
Uh, I have not been tested. <laughs> well, I think if I had it, I would like my cats more. Okay. <laughs> okay, so we have we have kind of a tiered system of grim importance from just distant reports suggesting there might be a threat to the threat being present to the threat growing and becoming permanent uh, till eventually the threat having the potential for doing a great amount of harm by controlling animals. Uh, the, that's the, the the fourth part of the front is the impending doom. What would happen if the players did nothing and this threat just continued to grow and grow to its final sort of uh, fruition, which in this case works in a literal sense. Mm. And here I saw the if eventually the this bloom would grow to the point where it had replaced almost all of the previous uh, plant-based life on the green sun with its own fungal life. Uh, and replaced the vibrancy of nature and growth with its own sort of structured, maybe hive mind-like ordered uh, growth. And so that's sort of the thematic difference and the threat to uh, the uh, to the green sun and to what the players would want to prevent from happening. Okay, so that impending doom is just, here's the ultimate consequence if this goes unchecked. Right. Just to keep that in mind, because it might help for planning purposes, even if we never get to that point, hopefully. Yeah, because once you use this in play, uh, when your players are asking you questions like, oh, um, what what does this fungus, what is this fungus trying to do? Um, you can fall back on, you know, the work that you've done here to figure out, well, what is my motivation as this fungus in this scene? And sure, it's not... It's not paragraphs and paragraphs of lore, but hey, it gives you a direction to at least come up with an idea on the fly. Right. It helps put some detail into the impulse. What is the motivation or why is this threat continuing to grow and develop? Uh, and in my case, I also wanted to say it's not just going to be bad fungus needs to be burned away, but instead there has to be at least an opportunity for the players to interact with the fungus uh, maybe to find a way to cooperate or to, you know, to cooperate with them to prevent the impending doom, not by dis the destruction of the fungus, but instead by some sort of ordered relationship between the fungus and the other communities already in the green sun. Because mm -hmm. I, didn't, I didn't want these to be the fungal orcs that are, we just have to, there's no way to negotiate with them. We just kill them off. Now these, this is, I want... In the spirit of the original Myconids and how they're often portrayed still, there's an opportunity here for, for conversation. Uh, and my players have chosen abilities and fortes and the like which to, that indicate they really want to negotiate rather than hit things really hard. Mm -hmm. And so all of my threats are going to, well, almost all of my threats will likely have some opportunity for social interaction and not just fighty-fighty with everything. Cool. Now, I also want to talk about, so that, that sort of walks you through how you could build a, a, a threat uh, or a front uh, using the four steps we talked about in episode 31. But I also thought it'd be fun to, to uh, provide some illustration of how I went through the research for this as well uh, and how uh, simple it is to come up with some cool ideas for a surreal setting. Uh, remember that you know surreal the surreal uh, nature of the setting means in some ways you want elements of realism that are turned on their head or exaggerated uh, or in some way rendered unrealistic. So the way I wanted to simulate that is to look at 
you know, to get inspiration from actual information about uh, fungi and use that to create elements of this particular front. Uh, and the veracity of the facts and the scientific nature of the fungus, uh, though exaggerated and made unrealistic, uh, it would be a fun touchstone to make this a surreal front for Invisible Sun rather than just any old orc horde. And I just did this with research on Wikipedia. Um, you know, I'm not recommending Wikipedia be the extent of your research for your college papers. I am professionally obligated to reinforce that point. <laughs> However, for our purposes of inspiration for an RPG, it's a pretty good starting point. And so I read Wikipedia entries on molds and fungus and then tried to figure out what can I borrow here that just plain sounds cool or what can I render surreal and make into an operative part of the campaign planning? So I started with a name and I've already talked about I, I, informally. I think I could call this the bloom because we can talk about fungal blooms. It's a fun name. It's an informal name, but it's a sort of name that the creatures of the green sun would likely be referring to this as, even if that's not what the fungal uh, the fungal bloom would call itself. So I wanted something more formal sounding for the self naming of this fungal uh, invasion. And for that, I looked at some of the names for fungus uh, historically, some of the roots of the term. And one of the names I came across was the, the hoofa. Uh, pronounced like it looks. Actually, no, um, I think I, I'm not quite sure how much to trust pronunciation on this Wikipedia page, but it's, it, I think it's spelled H-Y-P-H-A uh, with the plural H-Y-P-H-A-E. But it lists the pronunciation as Hufa rather than Haifa. So I'll go with Hufa. Yeah, it sounds more surreal. <laughs> yeah. We, it doesn't have to be accurate. Uh, it just has to, the inspiration just gives that little hint of reality that's useful for, for comparison purposes. Uh, that same search for a name turned up a, something more traditional in the scientific name for some fungus of, of I think it's class, maybe, mm -hmm. Eumistus. That just sounded like a cool NPC name. Uh, and I'm pretty sure you missed this should also collect spores, molds, and fungus. <laughs> well, yeah, of course. And uh, also known as his children. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I may have, an, I, I just, again, it's just a fun word to say. It's a fun word to see. And it seems to have the sense of an NPC name. Like a, it sounds like a scholar or a leader in a surreal fantasy community. So I'm going to borrow that name and just have someone named Eumistus. Maybe the leader of the Hufa is Eumistus or a scholar or something along those lines. Uh, then I, I, I sought to turn cool references into hooks. And again, just scanning through the Wikipedia page, I found a reference to slime molds being no notorious for their mage-like structures. And so in order to make it surreal, sometimes the, all you have to do is make something small, big. And if their structures are maze-like, well, now we just make it big. We make it uh, a pattern or a, a, you know, a, a strategy of these creatures to build mazes. Yeah, that's cool. I like that. And that writes itself. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
I kept scanning through, and again, I'm not going to go through all of the research necessarily to bore you on my on, on about uh, fungi and molds, but just as some other examples, I found that the fungi have the internal cell structures that provide internal coordination called septa. Septus, again, cool word. I wanted to find some way to use that. So if it's in the small sense, internal cellular structures that pro- provide a basis for internal coordination, well, I just make that big. And instead, I say that, oh, the septa are the creatures in the hoofa that enforce internal coordination hmm. and create the infrastructure. So either it is the infrastructure or more likely it's the equivalent of the law enforcement and political element within the bloom that enforces consistency and coordinates the activity of the bloom itself. And that lets me say the word fun word septa, and it actually has some correspondence to what that means in actual fungi. Mm. So a lot of the stuff that you're finding here is very ordered and structured, which is what you had alluded to earlier. Exactly. Cool. So again, I, I try to pick up the tone from the from the research and just make it big. I, I make the small into big. Mm-hmm. I make micro you know, cellular structures into macro structures. I make just general patterns in the nature of these creatures into big elements that are thematic instead uh, that resonate with what we think of about uh, a fungus uh, to help create that surreal juxtaposition that we're looking for. Well, and you also have the other juxtaposition here in that the green sun is like, you know, I think of it as uh, not structured. It's chaotic. Um, And bringing in this, you know, fungal society of order, you know, really plays against that in an interesting way. Right. It lets me keep some, they're both forms of life Mm -hmm. and they both want growth. However, they have a different attitude towards growth. And that's one of the contrasts I'll be building as the basis of conflict between the hoofa and the other, the more traditional residents of the green sun that are kind of unchecked plant life, plant and animal life. Mm -hmm. Cool. Uh, what just uh, a couple of last examples again, based on cool words and some fun sort of associations. It turns out that there's some fungi that don't have septa; they don't have uh, those internal cellular structures, and they are a different category than a fungus. Uh, but I want to use that again to make the small big and make the cellular structural differences into socio-political differences within the hoofa. So. If a fung a fungus without septa is called like the koino, so maybe I can have a dissident or independent element within this fungal society. Uh, these are maybe fungal creatures that are cut off from or have removed themselves from the hive mind of the fungus, and they may be the koino. Mm-hmm. And again, so there's it's just you know reading through the Wikipedia page. The, the last thing I did was think, okay, well, part of this story I want to tell is that there's a corruption that's motivating this change in behavior of the the hoofa. There's a corruption. And so I need to, what, what is it that, that threatens a fungus? Uh, and it's, it's such a basic form of life. It's kind of hard to think about what is it that, uh, that uh, would be the kind of the thematic sort of uh, threat to the hoofa. So again, I just did a little more research on antifungals <laughs> or diseases of, I think in this case, I looked up diseases of mushrooms and found that that nematode worms, 
are a major threat to mushrooms. Not in the sense that they just eat mushrooms, but they're really bad for mushroom uh, colonies. Yes, and then that um, that bacteria that there are there are entire classes of mycophage, I think is the term for it, mycophage bacteria okay. that are related to the nematodes in in various ways. And like, okay, I can work with this. So the threat that is motivating this change of behavior is going to manifest through giant worm-like creatures. And in some sense, there, as much as the the status quo residents of the green sun and all my players, friends in the green sun are worried about the contamination of the fungal bloom coming towards them. The fungal creatures are themselves worried about the contamination that they're facing that has started this whole, uh, this whole wave of, uh, of growth. Uh, and it'll be manifested in these kind of corrupting worms and their own diseases of uh, mycophage uh, uh, bacteria. And though, again, I'll make them big. Instead of them being bacteria, uh, I'll have uh, huge versions of these. So even if they're like, you know, tubular bacteria, well, I'll have a five foot tall tube that is basically a worm that's, you know, causing havoc within the the Hufa uh, community. And so, you know, again, I researched the threats to mushrooms and fungus uh, so that I could come up with some sort of thematic linkage uh, in the threat to, uh, the, the, to the fungus and kind of use the real world associations to inspire development, uh, which conveniently creates these fun sort of surreal strategies of making the small big uh, while maintaining some thematic connection. So there's a resonance between what the players are seeing when they see fungus and they see things that the fungus do, they see the thing, how the fung, the fungi are organized and that, and what it is that threatens uh, the fungal community. And hopefully that's just enough connection to make that seem that to be the kind of normal grounded part. So I can blow up and make big some of these other elements uh, to create the surreal juxtaposition we, we want within an invisible sun game. Uh, it sounds pretty cool. And giant gross nematode worms sounds terrible. <laughs> right. And, and the, and the fungus that they prey upon fungus. I'm okay with Ugh, those worms, like earthworms. Fine. Like worms in your stomach. Ugh, bad. And, and now I need to do more research on nematodes to come up with, make those really, really creepy. Uh, yeah, uh, that should be pretty easy to do. Those things are gross. Yeah, but back to Wikipedia. <laughs> cool. This ends our walk. Maybe you discovered something today. Maybe you need to look closer. The music was titled Beyond from Wes Otis and Plate Mail Games. It is available from DriveThruRPG. Invisible Sun is currently available for pre-order at InvisibleSunRPG.com. For a limited time, you'll receive an additional sooth deck when you pre-order the game. You can find our blog at IncantationsPodcast.blogspot.com or email us at IncantationsPodcast at gmail.com. You can find me at Agonseer, A-G-O-N-S-E-E-R, on Twitter. And you can find me at Tex underscore Red on Twitter. Do us a favor. 
leave us a rating uh, and a review on iTunes. Uh, it really helps people find out about our show. Another great way is to just uh, tell a friend. Uh, tell a friend about Incantations. Tell them about Invisible Sun. And that would really help us out a lot. <laughs>